Hello and welcome to Extrapolator. This is Jeff Allen. Okay, today I have an exciting guest for you, as always. My guest this week is Professor Lauren Ross. She is an Associate Professor of Logic and Philosophy of Science at the University of California, Irvine. And Lauren has a very interesting background because she both has an MD from medical school and a PhD in history and philosophy of science. So this crossover sets her up very nicely for writing about philosophy of biology and philosophy of medicine, as she does. Lauren's research focuses on causation and explanation in science. She looks at real scientific practices. She looks at the way that scientists explain causal relationships, the analogies they use, the explanatory strategies they use. And in some recent papers, Lauren has discussed causal explanation in neuroscience, in psychiatry, and in chemistry. Now, in this conversation, our main focus was a couple of the analogies that scientists use to explain causal relationships. Scientists use concepts like mechanism, pathway, and cascade to explain the phenomena that they're studying. And as you'll hear, a mechanism is an analogy to a machine. We're talking about moving parts, components, higher levels and lower levels. Whereas a pathway is an analogy to a roadway. So it's more about flow and connections and the possible routes through a causal system. And then lastly, a cascade is an analogy to a waterfall or the ripple effect or the snowball effect, where a small initial trigger causes a very large downstream effect. These analogies are very interesting. Scientists are appealing to things that they encounter in the ordinary world, like machines and roadways and waterfalls and snowballs, to explain the causal relationships that they're studying. So Lauren and I discuss these different causal concepts, and we discuss, you know, more broadly, using analogies and other language to explain things, using stories and visual imagery, and other topics related to causation, like the goal of control, causal concepts versus causal structures, and causation as it appears in different scientific disciplines, in physics, in biology, in the social sciences, and so on. This was a very interesting conversation. Lauren is very knowledgeable about the work and the practice of real scientists, and she has, of course, medical training herself. And her work as a philosopher of science, I think, shows the kind of work that philosophers can be doing, describing and analysing the practices of scientists, the concepts they use, the explanatory strategies they use. We can get a lot of insight this way. I certainly learned a lot from this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. So with great pleasure, I bring you Professor Lauren Ross. You know, I'm often asked, you know, what is philosophy of science? What do you do? One of the ways that I answer this question is by saying that if, you know, if you're familiar with theoretical physics or theoretical biology, that this is very similar to philosophy of science. It's very similar to philosophy of physics and philosophy of biology. You know, I'm a philosopher of biology. Mm-hmm. In some of my work, I look at how scientists communicate about causal systems in the world. The term mechanism is very popular in you know, philosophy and in science. I think that it can get overused and it communicates a kind of message to audiences that isn't always what uh, scientists intend. It can be a very reductive message and science involves many other ways of understanding the kind of causal structure of the world. There are many other types of causal systems that scientists study and are interested in besides what we might call a mechanism. So the language we use to communicate science matters a lot. And this is one place where philosophers of science, I think, can do some helpful work. And now you mentioned, of course, the analogies and the metaphors that scientists use to describe causation. So I think it's a great place to jump in now because you've written several papers on this topic, which are brilliant, and we can discuss those in greater detail. I think we've all heard these analogies to causation in biology, especially. So you give examples of mechanisms. So mechanisms for 
gene regulation, DNA synthesis, muscle contraction, visual processing. These are often referred to as mechanisms by biologists. But then biologists also talk about pathways. They talk about metabolic pathways, neural pathways, blood vessels, food chains. So pathways is a kind of, seems to be a different kind of analogy that biologists are using to describe the phenomena. And then in another paper, you talk about cascades. So we come across cascades in economics. We come across nuclear fission in physics. We can look into the approach that scientists are taking. And it seems like they're drawing, they're drawing analogies to ordinary objects and events to explain the things that they find. Analogies to machines and mechanical systems, which is the, the mechanism, or analogies to roadways, which is pathways. So that's blood vessels or analogies to waterfalls, avalanches, snowballs, which is the cascade analogy. So it's interesting to look at this strategy by human scientists to explain phenomena and to explain causal relationships in terms of things that they encounter in the ordinary world. Yes. So a little bit of background here that might help is that in philosophy of science, one of the biggest projects that we're interested in is saying something about how explanation works. Scientific explanation is special. It gives you deep understanding about the world. You know, some people think it's the most important thing that scientists do. It's different from merely describing the world, um, classifying stuff, even making predictions. It gives you deep understanding and knowledge. And so understandably, philosophers of biology and neuroscience want to know and say something about how explanation works in these fields. And what they've done, which I think is good, is they've looked at the science and what they realized very quickly is when scientists give an explanation, they appeal to a mechanism. They use the term mechanism. They use it all of the time, especially when they're describing causal systems and giving causal explanations. And so what this led to is basically a huge research program in philosophy of science, which has uh, dominated since basically 2000. And the main claim of this view is that the way that causal explanation works in these sciences is by appealing to a mechanism. So when a scientist provides an explanation of something in the world, you know, in neuroscience, biology, medicine, right? A disease, why a guinea pig has a certain coat color. When they do that, they're appealing to a causal mechanism. And the suggestion is that this is the way that it always works. Causal explanation always has to be and is mechanistic. Now, what I've done in my work is I've taken a closer look at essentially how scientists are describing causal systems and providing explanations. And one of the things you find, of course, is that they don't just use the term mechanism. They use many other causal terms and causal concepts, just like the pathway concept that you mentioned and the concept of a cascade. And what's interesting about this is the term that they use is often hooked up to an analogy that is used to essentially compare a causal system in science to a causal system in everyday life that we're more familiar with. This is the basic idea of an analogy. We compare something you already know about to something you don't, and that makes this new thing more cognitively accessible. If I tell you something is like a machine, even though you don't know about it yet, you already know, you know, what it's what it's like. This is an easy way to kind of communicate about new stuff and new causal stuff. When the mechanism term is used, it is often used to indicate that a system is similar to a machine, that it's machine-like. And machines have certain features. A machine is typically understood as a kind of whole that has parts. It has lower level parts, that interact with each other. You know, you think of a car engine or a watch mechanism. It has these lower level parts, they interact and they produce something. There's also a mechanical force that's involved in the causal relationships. They physically interact, right? You can think of those components 
the gears of the watch. If you look at other causal concepts like pathway, they're hooked up to different analogies, and those analogies are picking out different features of causal systems. So we see examples of pathways like developmental pathways, metabolic pathways, gene expression pathways, even blood vessels, right? We call these vascular pathways. A pathway is analogized to a roadway, and a roadway basically has a road and cars that flow down it. So in each of these scientific examples, you have a kind of structure like a road, and you have stuff that moves along it. You have the movement of blood along a vascular pathway. You have an organism moving along a developmental pathway. And sometimes you have information moving along neural pathways and even gene expression pathways. So a pathway involves the flow of something along a sequence of steps. And then finally, yes, the cascade concept is yet another one. And it is associated with this analogy of an avalanche, right? Or a waterfall, where you have a tiny amount of water at the very top, and this balloons out or fans out and amplifies. Cascades in science include things like the blood coagulation cascade, we have trophic cascades in ecology, and we have uh, cascading disasters in, social, in the social sciences. In each of these cases, what's interesting is just like the ripple effect or the snowball effect, there's a tiny cause that produces an explosion of effect. Cascades are dangerous. They have a tiny trigger that produces a huge outcome. We see this in each of these cases, and it's why they're analogized to something like the ripple effect, something like the snowball effect. And it's very different from a mechanism to have this feature. Cascades are, you know, in, in some sense, they're dangerous. This, you know, explosion is typically, once it's initiated with the trigger, just like the snowball effect, it's really hard to stop. And it produces a huge effect at the very end. Yeah, great. And I think uh, one of the insights from your work, of course, is that there is this diversity of of causal concepts that's used by biologists, that it's not just this kind of catch-all mechanistic explanation for explaining everything, that we do need and we do use a variety of analogies and concepts. So let's just take a pair for the moment. Let's just talk about pathways and mechanisms and just point to some of the differences, because this will, I think, help to highlight what you bring us through in one of the papers. So I think one of the clearest distinctions between pathways and mechanisms is in terms of the investigative strategy. So with a mechanism, it's all about drilling down, as you say, decomposing from higher level to lower level, getting to the detail, the fine-grained causal reasoning. Whereas with a pathway, it's actually quite different. We're expanding out. We're trying to show the network of connections in a whole system. We're not drilling down. We're not looking at the, the levels involved. We're trying to show the flow and the connection in the system as a whole. So I think it's a lovely point that with the pathway, it's about mapping out the potential connections, the available connections. It's a much wider view of the possible causal routes, as opposed to the mechanistic explanation, which is all about drilling down and showing the relation between the levels in a system. Exactly. Yeah. So what's interesting is pathways often involve a flow of material in many cases. So blood vessels involve the flow of blood. Uh, neural tracts involve the flow of various cellular materials and even viruses. We can put down these um, pathways. In ecology, there is a flow of energy through the ecosystem. So the, you know, the grass is eaten by the grasshoppers, eaten by the bird. There's a flow of energy, like caloric energy, through the system. So in all of those cases, you have the flow of some material through a sequence of steps. What's interesting and important is that mechanisms don't always involve that kind of flow of material. So think of, you know, a watch or a car engine that you're trying to understand, or maybe the watch, right? You have these physical parts that interact. We have physical parts interacting, but there isn't always the reliable flow of material from one part to the next. So there isn't always something that you can tag as it moves through the system. So that's just one way in which pathways are 
special and different types of systems. But yes, as you said, with a mechanism, it's, it's all about drilling down. So you fix your explanatory target and you drill down to find the lower level parts of that system. What's interacting to produce this? If you have a pathway map of the brain or of blood vessels or of prey-predator relationships in an ecosystem, you aren't fixing the explanatory target to one thing. You've got a whole bunch of explanatory targets. You've got a whole bunch of different potential locations that stuff can flow to and move to. And so there's just a different set of explanatory why questions and explanations you can provide. In my view, the scientific work points to there being causal diversity and uh, a lot of different types of causal systems and causal structures in the world. And I like the way you put it in terms of the how story and the why story. I think we're naturally interested in these as humans. Even as children, we're always drawn to these how questions, why questions. And that's what we're looking for with these causal explanations. We want a how story of how these X's cause Y and how things flow through a system or how the parts of the machine fit together. So I think that's, that's a nice way to frame it. And now let's take a different pair slightly. Let's talk about the cascade versus the mechanism. The mechanism was drilling down, decomposition. So the analogy is the machine. It's the parts of the system, higher levels and lower levels and components. That's the mechanism. And then we can distinguish the cascade as aiming at something actually quite different. So the cascade, again, is the kind of the trigger causing the amplification, causing large scale downstream effects. It's aiming at a different kind of explanation. It's not drilling down. It's not talking about levels. And actually, it's not even drilling into the effects necessarily. It might be about uncovering the effects. If we're analysing the structure of these two different explanations, this is part of what philosophers of science do when they take this bird's eye view of the argument. With mechanisms, we know the effect and we're drilling down into the effect to get at the lower level causes. Whereas with cascades, we actually don't know all the effects. We're following the snowball, we're following the ripples to uncover these downstream causes. So there's a difference here between what is known and what is unknown in the operation. So I think this is a nice way of, of distinguishing the cascade and the mechanism, a difference between what is known and what is unknown in the explanation itself. I agree. And this is the beauty of really paying attention to the science and examining it carefully and taking it seriously. The way that philosophers of science have understood causal discovery um, in the context of explanation is the drill down approach that you mentioned. So the, they're called new mechanist philosophers, the kind of current mechanism view. The, you know, the old mechanist was Descartes. <laughs> the new mechanists are building off of his work, but saying something new. And so the new mechanists say that, yeah, the way that you um, identify causes that are going to be explanatory is first fix the explanatory target. What do you want to explain? You want to explain coat color in a guinea pig or why this person has a disease. So you fix that and then you drill down to find the mechanism that produces it. Now, of course, a lot of science operates that way, but not always. And that's, that's part of where we get this, you know, more diverse, more complicated picture. Sometimes you have a causal structure like a cascade where you know there's a causal trigger, but you don't yet know what it produces. And you don't study the system by fixing the effect first and drilling down. You study it by flipping a switch, flipping a trigger, or identifying in the world that when this accident happens, like an earthquake, there's a bunch of sequentially amplifying things that you see, right? Uh, there's a bunch of sequential disasters that happen. It's even difficult to think of how you could study uh, a cascade with the decomposition and localization that mechanists, uh, you know, discuss all the time because a cascade involves an effect that is huge. It has exploded. So the way that I think of cascades is they involve a trigger. They involve sequential amplification once that trigger is set off. And they, as scientists describe, they run to their, you know, their final endpoint. They are really hard to stop. 
once you set off a cascade, you know, buckle up. It's going to go all the way to its conclusion. They're really hard to undo, just like a snowball effect, just like a ripple effect. So we see this, you know, with the blood coagulation cascade once it's triggered. And we see this with uh, cascading disasters, right? Once that earthquake happens, it sets off a sequence of, of steps and changes that take place in a kind of stable progression. Now, if you have an earthquake that causes 10 different downstream outcomes, it's amplified in the sense that you have one cause producing many effects. How are you going to fix the explanatory target to a single effect? Well, you're not, because there isn't a single effect. Mechanisms are often defined by single effects. So we start to see a lot of breakdown if you try to apply a mechanism broadly. Part of what I think this discussion has drawn out too is that cascades don't just come up in biology, neuroscience, and medicine. They show up all over the place. We have cascades in physics, nuclear fission. We have cascades in chemistry, cascading reactions. We have cascades in ecology, you know, uh, epidemiology, COVID transmission. So this is a really important thing for a philosopher of science to do in part because you're you're showing how there's a shared way of reasoning about causal stuff across different domains. There's a, a broad application of this way of thinking. And basically, you know, scientists can solve this kind of puzzle in a similar way in different domains. So it can be helpful to connect those up. That's another way that philosophers of science, I think, can be valuable. When a scientist is working in a particular domain, like biology, they're not often thinking of similar problems in the social sciences, or chemistry, or physics. Sometimes philosophers of science are, and so they can make these connections that bring insights from one domain into another. And something like the cascade concept, I think, demonstrates that really well. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and you mentioned making connections, because this is part of my kind of big picture view of what knowledge making even entails, that, you know, whether it's science or philosophy or whatever, marketing, computer science, I think this this idea of making connections is essential. An analogy itself is a connection between an ordinary thing that we encounter and some new phenomenon that we want to understand. But in philosophy, we also make connections between evidence and arguments. We're trying to synthesize and reorganize. So, yeah, I think I think about analogies as only one type of connection that we, we can make. And there are many, many types of connections that we try to make in philosophy and even in daily life. I mean, a lot of what we do, we look for links between disparate elements. We look for a synthesis to combine things in a way that actually provides insights. Exactly. And part of what's so great about work on causation is you can not only see similarities across causal reasoning in different scientific domains, but also between science and everyday life. Finding similar reasoning methods in everyday life and science is, <laughs> it's super, it's very valuable and it shows us something stable about how we reason about the world. Causation in biology and causal reasoning in biology isn't its own special unique thing. There isn't like you know, biology causation, and then there's chemistry causation, and there's, you know, causation in the social sciences and in ecology. There's a lot of similarity with how we think about cause-effect relationships, how we reason about them, and how we study them. That's extremely valuable. And, you know, something like the cascade is fascinating because they're using the same term even to refer to similar systems across different domains. And, you know, the original use of this term for the blood coagulation cascade was introduced by McFarlane. Um, and he is analogizing blood coagulation to electronic circuits um, and a photomultiplier. So <laughs> the original use, or at least one of the earliest uses in biology, is motivated by an analogy in the first place, right? And the analogy is picking up on something, you know, objective in the world, which is a very particular causal structure. So yeah, fully agree, making connections, very important for philosophers of science, and uh, I think very important to science and science communication. Yeah, it's amazing that the, the concept came from an analogy and a connection in the first place. I think all of this is great for reflecting even on my own use of language. 
studying this topic forces you to think about the strategies that you use yourself for explaining things. You realize the connections, the analogies that you've looked towards. I've been using analogies since the start of this podcast. I mean, in the first episode, I explained the term meta in terms of Rick and Morty and Futurama, because in these TV shows, they break the fourth wall. They reference the fact they're in a TV show. So there's a self-referential element, which is how I explained meta. I think that especially when we're communicating these ideas, analogies are they're fun and they they're more concrete and i think listeners find them useful for getting their heads around a new concept especially absolutely um probably the same goes for stories too or using case studies to give a little bit of color yeah interesting to think more about language this comes up a lot just in um, philosophy in general because there's a lot of jargon that we use Mm -hmm. that we need to think about when we're trying to communicate what we do to people outside the field. This is the case for any academic domain, but um, it's good to challenge oneself in this way. Explaining your work to different audiences I think is really important and it can even help um, you better understand what you do and how it relates to different types of projects and things in the world. Yeah, I've wrestled this for a while. I've been thinking about our use of language for, for a long time, especially with jargon and philosophy. With philosophy, it's it's difficult to capture what we're trying to say without the jargon because we do refer to things that are abstract, like metaphysics. There's there's almost no way to analogize metaphysics because it is something so abstract. But I think that as humans, we love concrete language. We love yeah, visual imagery. I've been reading a lot of writing books and thinking about writing. And I think that Stories are incredibly important for yeah, drawing the reader's attention and just helping us to, to visualize and to, to make a connection with what's actually being discussed. It makes sense that we're visual learners. We love concrete imagery. It's part of our evolutionary history, probably. And I think that when we're thinking about knowledge making, we have to remember the ways that we learn and the ways that we explain as human beings with human brains. And just as I've been warning about the dangers of jargon, I have a metaphysical question to ask you. (laughs) So, of course, the upshot of all we've been discussing about cascades and pathways and mechanisms is that there is a diversity of causal concepts, at least, that biologists are applying in their work. So my question is, you know, we've pointed to this evidence of a diversity of causal concepts we have lots of strategies in epistemological strategies from the stance of knowledge. But is this evidence of a variety of causal structures? You know, does it point towards a variety at the level of reality itself? And, you know, we're choosing these analogies. We're choosing to analogize things to a roadway or to a waterfall. How confident should we be that the realities themselves conform with the analogies that we've chosen? <laughs> Good. This is a really nice question, and I think also a hard question. The way that I think about causation is that it involves two things necessarily. It involves the world, and it involves a human who's studying the world. We can't think about it in terms of just one or the other. So we can't think about it just in terms of the human, because they don't get to pick what causes what, it's constrained by the world. There is structure in the world, and the world is a certain way. But it's also the case that we can't just talk about causation in the world in a metaphysical sense without humans, because the way that I think causation should be understood is that it's connected up to types of control So to me, to say that X is a cause of Y means that if you change X, this changes Y. You get some kind of control over Y. I don't think it makes sense to think about that or consider causal relationships without humans who are performing those kinds of changes or intervening on the world in a certain way. Having the goal of control is a human goal. And it's something that we bring to the table when we think of causation. The world doesn't tell me, you know, hey, Lauren, causation is all about control. Here's, 
here's how you should understand it. That's what we think. And I think we have good reason to think that. But once you fix that goal of control, then you can go out into the world and say, what controls what? (laughs) And that's where you get the more objective, maybe ontological or metaphysical piece or the kind of constraint where if causes are things that control their effects and I want to know what the cause of that disease is, well, what has control over it? If it's a virus and it's not, you know, something else, then I have good reason to appeal to and think that that virus is a cause of that of that disease. So this is a hopefully clear way of suggesting that the way that I think about these causal concepts is they do refer to causal structures in the world. But for me, causal structure in these different ones, it isn't just a metaphysical story and it isn't just a story about the human brain. It's a story that merges them both together. I think of it as epistemological, methodological. I think of it as involving normative considerations like that goal of control, but also these fixed objective ones where you need to go into the world to figure out whether something is a cause of something else. You can't sit in your armchair and think really hard about it, but you do need to go into the world with a purpose and with a particular kind of clear goal in mind. And I think if we look at science, we see that that goal is often control. So a picture that involves both and that I think of as epistemological and methodological, but where these causal structures in the world are both really out there, um, but identified, studied, and described by us and intimately related to how we think about causation. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant answer. Just highlighting both features, the human and the world. I talked about this a lot because it's a favorite topic of mine. So I talked about this with previous guests, Maura Cassidy-Burke and Janan Ismail. Just the idea that the human is embedded in the world, that whatever the causal process is, and there is a structure, there is a causal process happening, we're part of the causal process. We're manipulating, we're intervening. So yes, we're measuring the regularities, but we're also contributing to the regularities as they're happening. So this is the kind of an activist view that we're embedded in what is going on. And yeah, I've, I've grappled with this realism question for a long time. And I think this is quite a nice place to land. It's It also links up with the thing called perspectival realism, where you you're accepting subjective perspectives and you're accepting the role of the agent while also, you know, giving over to the constraints of the world as they exist. And I have a guest coming up called Richard Lang, who has a very different but wonderful perspective on all this. He's he's a meditation guide and I've been listening to his guided meditations for quite a while. And he, he has a program called The Headless Way, which comes from the philosophy of Douglas Harding. It's a metaphysical philosophy, but it's it's quite, I suppose, mystical in a way because it's all about being and experience and introspection and meditation as much as it's about a new view of the world. But he has a simple thing about physics depends on the observer. It depends on the range of the observer. So if I look at you from two meters away, you look like a person. If I look at you from right up close, you're a cell. And then from even closer, you're, you know, subatomic particles. And if I zoom back too far, you become a planet and then a solar system. So yes, there are regularities, what you are as a system, but me as the human, as a subject, depending on what distance I measure you from, you're going to appear very differently. So it's this dual recognition that the world is there, but depending who is looking and how we're looking, it can appear in different ways. I think that's a really important way to think of science and um, how scientists do their work. I really like the observer point And it's very much part of how I think about causation. One of the nice things, too, is that it allows philosophers of science to connect up their accounts of causation to work in cognitive science and psychology on how humans reason causally about the world. It's sometimes called causal cognition. So, you know, psychologists study how we navigate the world and identify true causes from, you know, things that aren't causal. And if you know a little bit about this work, or hopefully a lot about it, you can start to see how 
that matters for ways in which scientists study the world. You know, scientists, of course, are humans and they're observers. And for me, it's hard to think about science without a picture that includes them. And the same goes for causation. Uh, so very much agree. And I think it's important to reflect on the kind of picture that this gives us of science. Of course, you know, it also shows us why we can answer the same question in different ways. It can show us how, you know, scientists are humans who can make mistakes um, and how they can include, you know, judgments into their work. And, you know, and when they are relying on principled methods and what they're using those in conjunction with to make progress and to successfully answer various questions. So I very much like the observer perspective and it's a nice way to capture the way that causation is understood in this kind of framework. Yeah, I've never heard of causal cognition, but I love the approach of looking at the psychology of how we make sense of these relationships. And it reminds me of another related field called cognitive metaphysics, which looks at the psychology of how we categorize the world. So there is a certain way that we're predisposed to think about objects or colors or time or space. And, you know, the, the traditional view from philosophy has just been to go for it, just, you know, write about space and time, you know, originally from the armchair and now, thankfully, with more empirical methods. But there's a different approach where you could actually look at neuroscience and look at psychology and look at our own biases and heuristics for how we structure these things in, in thought. And then it doesn't reveal anything about the structure of the world itself, of course, because it's just the way we think about the world. And it could be very different from the way that intelligent beings from the Andromeda galaxy think about the world. But at least we know about our own biases and heuristics, and we can start to correct for them. And the same is true for this causal cognition discipline, that we should at least understand the psychology of how we think about causal relationships because we can start to identify any biases that we might have. And this, you know, as a realist, I like to I like to think that that brings us down the path of finding out the most accurate or the truest nature of how these things are once we're correcting for any potential psychological biases that we uncover. I think that's exactly right. If you don't have that observer picture, it's going to be harder to identify places where um, human biases can come in and play a role. And if you do have it, it might be easier to see them, but then I think also easier to see a really compelling way that science works, which is that, you know, scientists have certain goals and um, they are working with the world in various methods and reasoning strategies to strive toward them and achieve them. So very much agree. You have an MD from University of California, Irvine, and you have a PhD in History and Philosophy of Science from the University of Pittsburgh. So tell me about this path from studying medicine to then studying History and Philosophy of Science, HPS. Of course, yes. So my path from medicine to philosophy, um, what happened here? So I basically from a very young age have been interested very interested in science and typically the biological sciences so when i was in college it was very natural for me to become a pre-medical student i um, applied to medical school and i decided to go to uc irvine and medical school in the states is typically four years, and it's divided into two parts. The first part is focused on more theory of medicine, fundamentals, the background. You take a lot of tests, you study a lot. It's basically like undergrad, but you know, multiplied by 50. Mm -hmm. And the latter half of medical school is clinical work. So this is where you're in the clinic, you're in the hospital. And the normal experience of medical students is that they tolerate the first two years and they really love the last two. And most of my friends had that exact experience. 
But for me, it was actually just about the opposite. I loved the first two years, you know, studying the theory of medicine, human anatomy, human physiology. And when I got to the clinical part, I could tell that I didn't love it quite as much. I kept wanting to ask these bigger picture questions, these more abstract questions. You know, is this a disease? Is this patient's condition due to their biology or, you know, the fact that they don't have health insurance? And I basically could tell that I had a bit more of an academic orientation to basically to medicine and to science. And I took that seriously and I started to think of other career options, things that I could do where I could rely on and use my medical background and medical training. Through a stroke of sheer luck, I happened to be at UC Irvine, which has a very strong logic and philosophy of science department. And I started to take classes in this department. Um, I'd already known about philosophy. I'd taken a class at the very end of undergrad and I really enjoyed it. As I was finishing my medical degree, I applied to graduate programs in philosophy of science. I decided to go to the University of Pittsburgh in their history and philosophy of science department. And basically, I loved it. It was a really great fit for me and everything really fell into place. So I you know, went out on the job market and I ended up getting a job in, interestingly enough, in the logic and philosophy of science department at UC Irvine, where I got my medical degree. So that's where I'm a professor now. And it's a different path. It honestly was a bit uncomfortable in the middle of medical school to, to kind of realize and think that I might not be in the right place. But I took that seriously and I'm fortunate that I was able to in part because I get to do work that I really enjoy. And that's that's my story in a nutshell. Yeah, I love it. And I love to hear the kind of the HBS thing coming up from under the surface. I think that's very common that we have these deeper questions about what's going on. You know, we're studying something like medicine. I was studying law at undergraduate, but I kept thinking, where do laws come from? What's the foundation for ethics? We want to drill into the the deeper metaphysics or the deeper explanations of what actually is happening. And that's why we're drawn into the more abstract realms of yeah, the meta way of looking at these fields. I'm curious now, in your work, you know, you're, you're writing a lot about scientific practice and case studies from biology, neuroscience, and of course, from medicine. And as a reader, I do get the sense that you're familiar with these topics. You are primarily doing philosophy, but it's common for philosophers of science to know quite a lot about the real work of scientists and the real practices of scientists. So do you find that your background in medicine is useful when you're doing philosophy of science? And, you know, how how essential is your background in medicine for the kind of work that you're doing right now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it is the case that, especially in current work in philosophy of science, the, you know, individual who's making a contribution typically needs to know a good amount about that scientific context and that scientific domain. For my work, you know, in philosophy of medicine and, you know, Phil Bio, Phil Neuro, having that background is invaluable. When you have that training, you already are used to thinking in that space and you have a kind of intuition about how scientists understand things. And for me, this is a common feature of my work is that when I am putting forward an argument or a claim um, in my paper, I need to accommodate how scientists think. And I know, I know a fair amount about that, having this kind of background, but also the language, knowing the language and the terminology. This allows me to you know, very quickly get into this space and read these papers and um, have a, a good understanding of what's going on. I mean, it's my job as a philosopher of science to not only understand how science works, but to do more than that. The, you know, a philosopher is answering different kinds of questions that are more theoretical and more abstract. And, you know, whether it's having that degree or background in another scientific domain, it's not necessary I would say, to have graduate work in the science, but if you have it, it's very helpful. Mm -hmm. 
And so that gives us an insight into kind of the work that philosophers of science are doing. I often think of it as kind of a, a higher order awareness of the work of science, goals, strategies and practices. So an important question, of course, here is, why is this approach important? You know, what do we stand to learn from studying scientific practices? So studying science and scientific practices from the standpoint of philosophy, just as you said, involves this attention to assumptions, methods, um, the reasoning that scientists use when they are studying the world and telling us about it, basically. So in my work, I focus on causation and explanation. And getting these right is really important. Causation matters to us for all sorts of reasons in everyday life and in science. There's a lot of challenges involved in identifying causal relationships in the world and distinguishing them from mere correlations. Scientists do this um, really well, right? They, uh, they've put a lot of time and effort into causal reasoning, causal modeling. And it's the job of a philosopher of science to talk about the justification for the methods and modeling strategies that work well. And this matters because we want the right explanation for COVID and we want to know that, not just to provide, you know, a nice satisfying explanation, but we want to do something about it. We want to control the world. We want to prevent this disease. We want to cure other diseases when we can. And this requires knowing what causes them. This gives us a sense of what to target in order to change a disease outcome or prevent it. So um, that's of extreme practical importance right in the context of medicine. And we, we see this in many other domains where we want to change outcomes in the world. We want to explain them and we want to predict what's going to happen in the future. This boils down to having a very well thought out understanding of causation and causal explanation. Now we've talked a lot about causation in biology and neuroscience in particular, but I would like to talk a bit about causation as it features in different scientific disciplines. And this gets a bit wilder, more off the map, for talking about you know, physics and biology and sociology. I kind of have this view of, well, causation or explanation in these different disciplines. So we're making the point that we need different causal concepts, even in biology. And then zooming out even further, we might need different causal strategies, even in different domains. Of course, you've made the point already that there are some similarities that we, we shouldn't expect them to be completely different. But with physics, we have, well, we have laws of nature traditionally. So the things that we find in physics, the regularities, they kind of take the form of laws. And in biology, we find things like mechanisms, which are seen to be slightly more contingent. Maybe they don't qualify as being law-like patterns. So it's a different kind of strategy that we take. And then when we get to the level of social sciences, so I think a lot about causation and regularities that we find in, let's say, sociology. And it seems like whatever the regularities are, they're kind of getting progressively weaker, that there seems to be more contingency. They seem to be less law-like, which this might be a hot take, but it's giving rise to this replication crisis. So even in very similar experimental settings, we're getting quite a divergence of results. So we can't really seem to come up with these laws of human behavior or laws of social behavior, which hold true. So we can't replicate these traditional sociological or psychological findings. It seems like at the metaphysical level, there seems to be more contingency. We're not finding these laws. So at least it points to the fact that we might need different explanatory strategies in these different domains. So I don't know if you have any views about how we should think about causation, contingency, laws in these different domains of knowledge making. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. A nice first point is to indicate that even in the domain of physics, there are going to be laws that aren't holding universally and that there are certain contexts where they hold and mm -hmm. that maybe are older simple picture of them holding in every available context isn't quite right. 
this is something that I think we see in the work of Cartwright, Nancy Cartwright. Um, but of course, I do think, just as you say, that it makes sense to think of certain regularities, maybe causal regularities, as holding across at least broader or a larger range of contexts in certain sciences versus others. In biology, we often restrict the domain or the context that we're interested in. And we don't have things that are law-like in the sense of being regularities that hold kind of universally in, you know, across all organisms or, you know, even beyond our planet. The way that I think of causation is that you don't need just a law of nature, but you do need a kind of regularity, a causal regularity. Basically, you're interested in something that if it were to be manipulated or changed, it gives you control over something else. Causes are things that give you control over their effects. Now, if you look in biology, there are a lot of cases where biologists find causal relationships and they can use them to do things, right? To give explanations, to control things. I mean, you know, we don't see smallpox on this planet anymore because we were able to successfully identify the virus that causes it and to come up with a vaccine. And it's been eradicated from the planet. Mm -hmm. If that's not, you know, a successful <laughs> causal explanation that has been used to, uh, you know, make a change in the world, then it would probably be hard to identify something that is. So I think we do, right, sometimes when you work in philosophy of biology, you will have people say that um, explanations maybe require lots of lower level physical detail. And so um, if you don't have that, then you don't have a real explanation. Or if you don't have a regularity that holds broadly, maybe you don't have one. Of course, I don't think that's um, the right kind of standard to expect or apply to explanation. But it is the case that the domain will be more restricted. But um, I guess I don't always see that as a problem because when we pick out the thing we want to explain, we restrict the domain, right? If I'm interested in explaining a particular disease, I'm interested in explaining it in humans on this planet in a situation where, you know, oxygen is present and they have, you know, the availability of food. Now, the, the disease does kind of depend on a patient having, you know, there's oxygen in the background, it's a background condition, they have access to food, but, you know, we assume that those are all present because they often are, and we're interested in what explains the disease in that situation. And I think that just reflects the pragmatic context in which we're interested in explaining something. And it's gonna be different in biology than in physics. You don't have to worry about organisms and physics in the same way. When you're doing an experiment on rats and you want to know whether giving them a drug or not, whether that causes something, you know, you need to give the rat the right kind of background conditions. You need to give it oxygen. You need to give it food. <laughs> when you're studying stuff in physics, maybe you don't have to think about those kinds of background conditions. Mm -hmm. Biology is more complicated in certain ways than um, other types of phenomena and other sciences. And I think because of that, there are going to be different methods that are used. I think it doesn't indicate that the explanations aren't as deep or that they aren't as strong. Uh, we have good reason to think that they're extremely successful and very, and very powerful, right? They've allowed us to make changes and to successfully make predictions. And, and yes, when you get to the social sciences, maybe it gets even more complicated mm -hmm. and maybe even more contingent, right? I think part of what this shows us is that in these different sciences, right, philosophers sometimes call them special sciences. They're, they're um, you know, the sciences beyond physics and chemistry we do need to specify what the context is, what the domain is, and what the explanatory target is. And there's a lot of work to be 
done, I think, in clarifying what the kind of rigorous methods are that are used in these domains and that should be used. You know, the social sciences get um, criticized in philosophy of science for not having rigorous explanations. I think that they're there and they do exist. Actually, philosophy of psychiatry does too. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, uh, psychiatric diseases are right, and just that area of medicine gets criticized a lot. But what I think isn't always appreciated is how complicated these domains are. And I think that we do find uh, rigorous explanations in them, but there is a real importance on clarifying that, that principled rationale uh, behind them. And, and you know, they're, they're of the utmost importance, right? Figuring out what's causing various diseases and what's causing various differences in population-wide outcomes in society and how to how to change them for the better you know this is this is very important and it's a great place to see where philosophy of science can help add to and advance these types of debates and discussions yeah it's a very important upshot that we we should specify the domain we're talking about and think about the kind of thing we're aiming to capture with the causal explanation and the kind of things that we're not aiming to capture at all. And even in the more complex cases, we might need a mix of all of these strategies to capture a more wide range of regularities. And it gets all very complex. But of course, I think a great takeaway from your work is that we should think about this diversity, this pluralism of of causal, causal concepts and causal structures that we find that is, that is a, an upshot of my work. Um, causal pluralism refers to and is used to mean a number of different things. It can be a bit ambiguous. In this case, the pluralism refers to different causal relationships and different causal structures. You might also think that causal pluralism can refer to different methods of studying causal relationships or different definitions of causation. Um, Of course, we have different methods for studying causal relationships. Most people are causal pluralist in that sense, but there's a lot of debate about whether to be a causal pluralist about the definition of causation. I don't think we have good reason to be pluralist about the definition of causation. I think the interventionist account um, does everything we need a definition or account of causation to do. In this case, it's a pluralism about structure. So you might think we have definitional pluralism, methodological, and then structural, capturing different causal structures. So this work is very much in favor of that that final type of causal pluralism, which suggests that there are different types of causal relationships and causal structures in the world. And um, yes, indeed, this is a key feature of my work and one main thing that I think it suggests and argues for. Well, I think it's a great summary. And I think that both I and the listeners have learned a lot about how to think about causal structures, causal concepts, and the definition itself of causation in this conversation. So, Lauren, thanks so much for your time. And I wish you all the best with your exciting work going forward. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Extrapolator is produced and edited by me, Jeff Allen. There's no team behind the podcast. It's just me. And I really appreciate the ongoing support from listeners. It's been wonderful to see the listenership steadily growing and to connect with some of you on social media. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and please take 30 seconds to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps the podcast to grow. You can also follow me on social media, on Facebook and on Instagram, at ExtrapolatorPod. The artwork for Extrapolator was created by Hugh Allen. The music was written and recorded by me, and it's available on Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and all major directories. Just search for Extrapolator, original podcast soundtrack. As always, thanks for listening, and until next time.
Thank you.